Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I started watching this show this weekend. Maybe you've watched it. It's called Alone. Maybe you're not. I'm not endorsing the show by any means. I've learned not to do that. I get myself in trouble more often than not. But this show is called Alone. And here's the premise of the show. They take crazy people and they drop them off in the wilderness alone. And so this particular season happens somewhere in the VC up in Canada. And there's 200 grizzly bears in this area, and they're supposed to live through these harsh conditions and environments. It's for crazy people. The bears want to kill you. The weather wants to kill you. Poisonous plants want to kill you. Everything there wants to kill you. It's like being in Chicago. It was interesting, around day 15 of this show, uh, a few contestants have, have they've established themselves. They've built their shelter. They've found ways to get food. They're able to sustain themselves, but they're kind of tapping out because they're lonely. That's why the show's called Alone. It's amazing to watch these people who are highly competent to live in their survival kind of skills, everything else. I, I was joking with my kids that I would last maybe 15 minutes there. Here they are. They can't stand to be alone. It's almost as if we, as human beings, were never meant to be alone. Spiritually speaking, this morning, we were never meant to be alone either. In fact, it's so important for uh, the life of the New Testament, for the believer to be involved with other believers, that Jesus makes statements like this. Well, He makes a statement about his ongoing presence with us and how important that is. It's his last words on the earth. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His presence is with us. We're not alone. When the author of Hebrews writes his epistle, he tells us to take care not to be given over to an evil, unbelieving heart. And then the very next phrase is that we should exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you didn't catch it, the antidote to the waywardness of my sinful heart is the community of faith. And yet we have more Christians today claiming that they can do it by themselves than I ever remember in my lifetime previous. It does seem a a bit of a popular notion right now, doesn't it? That there are many walking around here in our context in Troy, Ohio, saying that the church is full of hypocrites and heartache, and it's just not worth dealing with anymore. Thereby, the church is unnecessary in their view to their particularized faith. And so it's best just to, to get on by yourself, to become this kind of lone wolf Christian. We've said this before. The problem with lone wolf Christianity is that lone wolves get eaten. There's a predator prowling around like a roaring lion that wants to devour you. And when you're alone, you are easy prey. 
See, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a bit this morning. I love our sense of community here. If I'm going to brag about gospel community, I'm going to brag about you, the people who make gospel community a rich community of faith. But I wonder if God has something for us this morning. I wonder if, if God has a, a bit of a challenge for us this morning in regard to how to do community to the greatest degree possible. When we first started planting, we would hear this response back. People would come to us and they say, you know what I'm really looking for? I'm looking for community. And it was kind of this magic buzzword that everybody wanted. It was like pizza, right? Everybody has their own kind of toppings that they like on pizza. My son was objecting to people putting pineapple on pizza. I have to say I'm actually a fan of pineapple on pizza, but that's neither here nor there. Regardless, our sense of community is like our desire for pizza. We all like different things. We like different emphases. Some of us like the pepperoni. Some of us like the sausage. Some of us like the pineapple. Some of us like to do prayer together. We like deep conversation. Others of us, we just like to hang out. We like the friendliness, the security of knowing that there are other people like us. And so there's different emphases and all of this emphasis on community. And what we found is when we started to talk to community, we had to say, what do you, what do you mean by that? When you're talking about your love for community, what do you mean by community? This morning, I think Paul has an emphasis to say, here's what I mean by community. See, we're in Romans chapter 12 this morning. Here's our big idea. God's grace creates gracious community. Now, some of you say, that's not my experience. The church is anything but gracious. The church is anything but kind. But Ideally, in its idealistic form in Romans chapter 12, we're going to see that grace recipients become grace givers. We're going to see this in three different phases. See, I've done my nerd thing here this morning, and I find a lot of Asians, five different Asians, A-T-I-O-N endings that we find in our passage. And so the Christian life is immolation, that is making a sacrifice and transformation in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Christian community, then, is humiliation and incorporation, being incorporated into a body in Romans 12, 3 through 8. And then Christians in community are about subordination. I've found a way to make this the most confusing passage of all time. But hopefully, if you can write down those words, take them home and look them up in a dictionary, you might be able to figure out what that is. We're going to dive in that Christian life is about immolation and transformation in Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2, read this with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the first thing that Paul calls us to is this idea of offering our bodies as spiritual worship. That's this idea of immolation. That's a big word for just throwing something on the altar. And so therefore, by the mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves. You say, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Paul is referring to 11 chapters of rich, meaty theology 
in which he has unpacked the glories of the gospel. If you remember your VBS Bible verses from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of what? Of the gospel, for it's what? The power of God for salvation, right? This is what Paul is going to unpack throughout this book of Romans. And so chapters 1 through 3, and we'll see it on the screen here this morning, chapters 1 through 4 are the gospel's justifying work and making sinners right with God. He tells us in in chapters 1 through 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Jews and Gentiles alike. All of us have fallen short of God's righteous standard. And then in chapters 5 through 8, the gospel's sanctifying work in making sinners keep God's commands, right? He allows us to be able to keep his commands as he fundamentally changes us. And then in 9 through 11, he deals with this kind of parenthesis as he talks about the gospel's work and sovereign choice. And he wants to particularly look at the nation of Israel and what's happening with God's sovereign plans for Israel and for the church. It's that kind of outline this morning that Paul is referring back to saying, by the mercies of God, give your bodies. And so he's saying, be sacrificed. See, the next phrase from Paul is that we are to offer our bodies by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You've all read the Old Testament stories, right? You would take that lamb, the, uh, Leviticus 16, the, the high priest would take two goats and he would confess his sins, lay his hands on the head of this goat and confess the sins of the nation. And then they would take one goat and send it out into the wilderness and a second goat They would slit its throat and kill it and burn it on an altar. And what Paul is saying here this morning is that we are the goat, that we are the offering now. It's holy and acceptable. These animals were not to have any blemish that you and I, as we are an acceptable sacrifice to God, are filled with the the potential of morality before God, that we no longer hold on to those things of our former life and lying and lusting and doing everything else. Now we take on the new life of Christ and we place ourselves on the altar. Paul describes that this is our spiritual worship, or it might even be described as our uh, kind of rational worship. It's appropriate for the mercies of God that we've seen in Romans 1 through 11. But this willing self-sacrifice isn't that all that Paul wants us to see. In verse 2, he presses on that we would be transformed. It's not just immolation, it's transformation, right? And so that's what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect that word transformed is the same word that Matthew used in Matthew 17 of the transformation of Jesus. Remember that story, right? Jesus goes up, grabs his favorite disciples, and goes up a mountain, and his face changes. It's like he tears back the veil and shows them his glory. That's what Paul's saying here. You and I are to be transformed. We're to be something different than what we were. We're to show that we're kind of something like the transformation that Jesus showed us. That word is the word metamorphosis. And 
all of you are thinking about butterflies right now, right? The idea of change, becoming something different. And notice it's held in tension with this word, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Not to be conformed to the patterns and desires of our world, the kind of corporate flesh that lives out in our society. We're supposed to kind of reject that, become something new in Christ. What's this metamorphosis? What's this transformation look like? Well, he says there in verse 2, it's, it's a changed mind. That's what he says, is that by testing, you may discern what is the will. Oh, excuse me, I, I missed it. But be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. You know that the, the Bible tells us that our mind is actually affected by our sinfulness. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 2, he says that uh, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, but that we have the mind of Christ so that we think differently. Theologians refer to this as the noetic effects of sin. But here, Paul is telling us that that we need to have a changed mind. And, And part of what that changed mind brings about is this proving of the will of God. So tomorrow morning, you go, and you're going to fill out this TPS report at work, and you want to cut a shortcut, and you want to do it wrong, and you want to kind of hand it in and just get it over with. But the Spirit of God convicts you. And so you prove the will of God. I'm not going to, to work half-heartedly. I'm going to work as unto the Lord, like the Scriptures say. And I'm going to do my best in the midst of this, right? That's what this transformation is proving itself out to be. It's a changed mind that proves the will of God and its character and its output. See, Paul gives us this vision of a new spirituality. He gives us this vision of Christian spirituality. And Christian spirituality then is marked by these two things, self-sacrifice and countercultural transformation. It's marked by self-sacrifice. It's this idea that I would lay down my desire, that I would not do the things that are most natural to me. It's this countercultural kind of life change or mindset. Now, who do those two words sound like? Self-sacrifice and countercultural transformation. Isn't that the life of our Savior, Jesus? Jesus was countercultural and nonconformist, right? Jesus was this revolutionary who was marked by his faithfulness to his father so that he was always opposite these Pharisaic rulers around him. But he was also self-sacrificing. Jesus was laying down his life and his desire. He says, you know, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus was one who laid himself down so that he could establish us in him, his own life and death. See, this morning, we are called to these two principles because Jesus did it first. Because Jesus laid down His life, we can lay down ours. These acts of immolation and transformation only come and are possible through the lordship and self-sacrifice of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying by the mercies of God. 
You know, here's the truth, though. You and I are kind of messed up spiritually, and we've really made a mess of spirituality throughout history. There was this uh, group called the Desert Fathers, and there are some faithful men who were a part of these Desert Fathers, but these guys went out to live in the desert as an expression of their spiritual reliance upon God. The first was Anthony the Great. He was the first of these Desert Fathers. He heard a sermon about selling your possessions, giving the proceeds to the poor, and following Jesus, and he decided to add to it that he would go one step further to live in complete solitude. And so he went out into the desert and lived by himself. There's a story of a man who literally put a pole up in the desert and lived on top of the pole for months at a time. See, in, these, in fact, these desert fathers were, were the predecessors to our, our monastic movement that happened in the uh, Middle Ages, where these men would kind of enter into these monasteries and separate themselves for the purpose of personal piety and holiness. See, these early monastics sought to cloister their lives, to kind of shut themselves away from the surrounding community and possessions. And, and they had this notion, this kind of idea that they could separate themselves. Now, there was some right theology under it. Like, I, I think these early desert fathers had this idea that, um, I say right theology, this is not right theology, but um, they had this idea that the demonic powers lived out in the desert, right? That's where you would naturally go to find demonic powers, I mean, look at Las Vegas. It makes sense, right? And so they would go and they would submit themselves because they were victorious in Christ and they would go and submit themselves to these demonic powers as they fought. See, the result was this kind of dumbing down of Christian theology. Monastic Christian living became a a caricature of the Christian life. Or all I have to do is deny myself the comforts so that I can be holy. That's not necessarily true, right? So this morning where these desert fathers and monastics had a notion that Christianity required isolation, Paul wants to say that this self-sacrificing, transformed life needs to be in community. And in verses 3 through 8, he's going to kind of push in that direction for us to say, no, if I'm going to do this self-sacrificing, this transformation, I need to be around people. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in all serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. See, Paul tells us not to be so full of ourselves. He's saying that we've been given this faith in verse 3, right? And so he says this, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of, of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. 
right? Like sober judgment. You ever been around a drunk person and assessed their ability to judge? The words, hold my beer, are often the last words ever spoken, right? Sober judgment has a much more grounded sense of who we are. Notice how how Paul says we ought to think of ourselves there in verse 3, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, that we are to think of ourselves in accord with the faith that we've received. Notice that God has assigned our faith, that you didn't even conjure up faith. Not only could you not save yourselves by your right actions and all the good deeds and helping old ladies cross the street and everything else, it's that even the faith that you've been given wasn't from you. Paul is saying that we should interact with one another as though we were completely helpless to save ourselves. A few months ago, I showed a video up here. I, I love this video, but it's this video of a sheep that has fallen in a trench and the shepherd kind of grabs it by the foot and yanks it out. Just a picture of our savior, just pulling us as these weak, stupid, dumb sheep out of this trench. Right. And the sheep is all happy for like two steps and then falls right back in the trench that he came from. That's you and I, right? How many of us are continuously struggling with the same things over and over and over again? We falling into the same trench of sin. We're constantly being given over to this reliance upon the goodness and graciousness of Christ. We should think of ourselves as these helpless sheep that always find our way back to the trench and always need to be pulled out again. And he goes on, it's not just that you're a recipient of grace. He goes on to say that you're a part of a body. You should be humble because you're one cog in the entire machine. That's what he says in verses 4 through 8. In verse 5, he says, we, though many, are one body in Christ. You and I, we've heard this before, right? You're a part of the body of Christ. If you have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the Spirit has endowed you with this spiritual gifting that you can serve the body and kind of live in this interdependence in the body of Christ. Some of us, you know, we're arms, and some of us are feet, and some of us are ears. Francis Chan said that some of us are like the spleen of the body. We don't know what you do, but when you get mad, you could blow the whole thing up, right? Notice here that we are just this interdependent body that none of us can kind of self-elevate ourselves over and above another. That we all need each other. Let me just say this this morning. There's no... Uh, There's no deacon, there's no elder, there's no pastor that doesn't need shepherding and care. I'm I'm no exception this morning. See, Paul doesn't just give us a view of the Christian life. He gives us a view of Christian community. You know, sin gives us this inflated view of ourselves, doesn't it? When we participate in sin... When we think of ourselves in isolation from God, it kind of puffs us up. One of the most interesting things is in Genesis 3, when Satan comes and tempts Eve, not only does he undermine the words of God, he insinuates that God's not good. He says that you will not surely die. No, you'll become like God, knowing good 
and evil. There's this puffing up, this pride. Eve, you could be like God. Eve, you could know good and evil like God. Paul Tripp says it this way, sin at its root is self-centered, which means it's antisocial. Sin causes people to stop being objects of my affection and love. Instead, they become obstacles in the way of or vehicles that deliver what I want. Ever meet somebody that has an agenda for you? We get salesmen that stop in here all the time and they have an agenda for me. They think our budget is so massive that we can afford to buy like, you know, gold-plated trash cans or whatever they're selling, right? And so they have this agenda and they want to act like they're your friend, but at the end of the day, they just want you to buy something. See, the gospel deflates my sense of self and it makes me reliant on someone else's mercy. See, by deflating the self, I'm capable of seeing others as needy as I am. And I can engage them with mercy and kindness and grace. Isn't that what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 12? When he's, when he's writing, he's saying, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then when we serve, we serve according to the grace, verse 6, according to the grace given to us and use it in proportion to our faith. That even these giftings, this expression of faith, didn't come from us. So what Paul does from here is he said that, hey, we've got to be about immolation, and we've got to be about transformation, and we've got to be about humiliation and corporation, Right? But he starts to string off this list of commands in verses 9 through 21. I mean, it just reads like this, this laundry list of items to do. And in fact, I kind of dislike reading these kinds of passages at times in my flesh because it just feels like more things that are added to the list. But if we disconnect verses 9 through 21 through the rooting in verses uh, in chapters 1 through 11, how we're made new in Christ to obey, and the gospel-oriented rooting in verses 1 through 8, We might miss what's being said here. See, all of these commands have this kind of community orientation. And so look at how Paul calls us to subordination. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. 
Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a turn that happened in there. I'm not sure if you saw it, but in verse 17, we went from the inward stated commands of how we treat one another in the body of Christ to the outward stated commands about how we treat those outside of the church. And so there's this kind of full sense that Paul is giving us about how we treat one another as those who have been humbled by God's grace. So these inward-oriented commands in verses 9 through 16, it starts off with this general call to love. And then it turns this orientation toward how we treat one another. And then in 17 through 21, we see these outward-oriented commands. Just to put this in context, that when Paul started his epistle in the book of Romans, he started off with these commands in Romans chapter 1. In fact, it'll be on the screen in front of us here this morning. In Romans chapter 1, he said that uh, he described what the sinful heart was like, that it was heartless, that it was approving of evildoers, that it was uh, kind of God-haters, that they were arrogant and boastful, that they were filled with strife and malice. As he kind of characterized those who were in the flesh, that's what they were. But now, as we're made new in Christ, look at the commands that he's, not to be heartless, but to be loving. Not to approve of evildoers, but to hate evil. Not to be God-haters, but serve the Lord. Not to be arrogant and boastful, but to not be proud. To avoid patterns of strife and, and put on patterns of harmony and peace. To avoid malice and repay no one evil for evil. So Paul's brought this whole argument to completion, right? If we're those made new in Christ, if we're those who have faith in Jesus, we should have a pattern of being together that's marked by the gospel, that's marked by the self-sacrificing Savior, Jesus Christ. You might say, that's great, Jason. What does that mean for me? There's some of us here this morning, and I don't want to kind of bypass this, and I don't want to be shorthanded with this or... Uh, I don't know, numb to it, I would say. Some of us have been hurt by the church. Some of us have been hurt by the church. In fact, this is really prevalent now. I'm going to just tell you, most people I speak of, speak with, they have a negative story from their time with the church. And sometimes it, it just preoccupies their mind. Remember once we uh, finished a service and there was a, a new visitor here with us. And um, this man and our family and his family, we went out to lunch. We started to discuss what his church history was like and he just started to detail story after story after story of hurt and heartache heart broke for that man. Some of you have had negative experiences right here at Gospel Community Church. Some of you had negative experiences with me. And first, I just want to say this. If I don't know about it, come serve me and tell me so that we can make it right. But second, the, the leadership here at Gospel Community or other people involved in your community groups or whatever else it might be, they're going to fail you. Let's just get that right on the table. We are sinners saved by grace. 
and we will fail you. Don't have this lofty notion that I am something different than you or that someone else here is something different than you. We sin too. Here's a question, a gentle question to kind of redirect our thinking. How would your church hurt be different if people were to do what Romans 12 required? How would your church hurt? There was a a little bit of a distraction in there for a second. I want to say that again. How would your church hurt be different if the people involved did what Romans 12 called you to do? See, the tendency to not be involved in a church because someone in the church has hurt you is not a good response. You're losing baby with your bathwater. Remember that God told us in Hebrews 3 that the antidote to the hardened heart is us. Is being together. So let's be slow to dismiss our need of the church. Second pushback I have here this morning. Let's just imagine you have a best friend. You love this guy, right? Or girl. Well, for the sake of illustration, this guy. And he's married, and you have no desire to be around his wife. How good is your friendship going to be in five years? See, isolation from the church is a disconnection from Jesus. Jesus says, well, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, he says that Jesus died to make a people for his own possession. That the church is this expression of the fullness and beauty of Jesus that we're this temple that God's just kind of building out of these broken, nasty stones, and he's putting them together to build this house for his name. And when we say, I don't want to be a part of that, it reflects a disconnection from Jesus himself. See, here's the truth of all this. Underline this this morning, is that you have been transformed for a purpose. God has miraculously given you mercy in Christ. Isn't that how Paul started our passage? By the mercies of God, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, right? We, by the mercy of God, the, the f- substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, that he took my sinfulness upon himself, that he gave me the righteousness that he had done for 33 years, that he gave that to me so that I could be new, so that I could be transformed. I am transformed by the cross. And when I'm in the church, I bring my transformed presence into the midst of people that also need to be transformed. There was a speaker that I've heard years ago that was named Rich Plass, and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to bring your transformed and transforming presence. That's what you need to do.
That's what the church members are meant to do, to just simply be present as one who trusts in the gospel, who trusts that Jesus is going to work all things according to his purpose. See, our life in community starts with received mercy. We're sinners, that we deserve eternal punishment from God, but God has been merciful not to give the punishment that we deserved. And the mercy of God brings about this transformation so that you are not who you once were. God desires to bring his mercy to others through you. both inside and outside the church, God wants to use your transformed presence to bring about transformation in other people. Christian, if you are in Christ, you have everything you need to provide a rich family for your fellow worshipers at your church. The truth is this morning that we can be like family. We can be devoted to one another. The church can be this warm, inviting place. It can be marked by genuine love and care for others. Such that we give up our Saturdays so that we can go and help somebody who needs babysitting or needs a meal or does whatever they can to help. It can be that love that's marked by someone who just asks a question, hey, you said you were struggling with this area. How are you doing? It could be marked by love that sits down on a Tuesday afternoon and writes a note of encouragement to somebody else in the body of Christ because they know they're going through a hard time. So this church can be marked by love and care, but the church can also be marked by devotion so that we can live in community with one another and say, hey, I saw you the other day speak to your kids this way. Everything okay? Maybe that's not the best way to speak. We can lovingly confront. Jesus tells us if your brother sins against you, go and show them his fault. I don't know, have you ever been in a family where one family member just does whatever they want? It doesn't work very well, right? If we're going to be the body of Christ, we've got to be able to call out those expressions of sinfulness that are kind of contrary against the grain of God's world. Life in community with one another. See, Jesus makes this statement. We'll look at it a couple weeks from now in John. Jesus told us that the defining mark of Christian community was the love that we have for one another. He says, a new commandment I give to you. It's funny because it's actually an old commandment. It's actually stated in the book of Leviticus that we should love one another. But he adds a little addendum at the end. He says that you should love one another as I have loved you. The bar, the standard is no longer to love, it's to love like Christ. And he says in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not selfish love that always wants to get back to receive self-sacrificing, Jesus-saturated love for his bride. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to foster, right? You know, it's funny. Like, Jody and I both have amazing families. 
You might hear me make mother-in-law jokes from time to time, but they really are great people who love Jesus. And my parents are okay too. When I was a kid, I was in a church, 15 years old. And one morning I woke up to get ready for church and my parents said, hey, we're not going to church this morning, which was strange. But they had gotten wind that uh, that particular morning, senior pastor was going to do something caustic and it was going to split this church right down the middle. He was going to act selfishly. He was going to say something that he had to see done. So from there, that's exactly what happened. And that church split. As a 15-year-old kid, I remember looking and saying, if that guy can't keep it together, there's no way I can. You fast forward 20 years, and Jody and I take a job I take a job in a church in Greenville, Ohio. And I'm kind of unhappy about it because I thought I was kind of a big deal, right? It's a small little dinky church in this backwater little town. And God shows me what the church can be. That these 150 people who genuinely love one another are exactly what I needed. made the church so many things that it's never meant, never been intended to be. We've made it a business. We've made it a show. We've done all of these things. But one of God's primary intentions for the church is that they would be loving like family. And I wonder if we might love one another like family. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask that that's exactly what you would bring about for your glory and for your honor. Lord, we trust that you're working through your word right now. You're bringing comfort where it needs to be brought. You're bringing conviction where it needs to be brought. Lord, we plead with you that you would allow us to be those who are marked by love for one another. That as your son, Christ has loved us, so we also might love one another. And in that way, we might show ourselves to be your disciples created through the cross, through the resurrection, made new, transformed, so that we can become what you have desired for us to be. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.